Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name is Stuart Wright, and today's returning guest is Sean Hogan. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Now, last time we had you on, you were talking about a book called England Screaming, which was uh, a fantastic and cleverly imagined look at UK horror. Post-World War II, was it all of it post-World War II? Uh, it was, yes, yeah. And you wove a load of characters together which didn't exist in their own fictional universe into your fictional universe and created a world and timeline that said they were all connected, which was wonderfully exciting and uh, damn clever, as I said to you when we first spoke. You've only gone and followed that up now with uh, a trip across the Atlantic with uh, Twilight's Last Screaming. And when I say you've done more, this book is a monster, Sean. This was kind of always the book I was working towards. Um, when I first had the idea about even, you know, doing this book, it, uh, it, it was it was my first impulse to do America because those are the films that were sort of like most important to me as I was really getting into horror. But at that point, I was kind of like not, you know, writing any sort of prose fiction anyway. I was just screenwriting. So the whole idea kind of just quickly became, you know, just too daunting. I kind of thought, ah, oh, that would be a great book to write, but I could never do it. It's just too big. I wouldn't know where to start. So it was just kind of like one of those ideas that got filed away for future reference. You know, it was like maybe one day. And then I, so I kind of built up to it. I did like the Deathline book, which was a very sort of small start. And that mm. led to me doing Screaming, which was my first sort of stab at doing this. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I sort of taught myself how to write these books in doing that. Mm. So by the time I'd finished that and the, the fact that, you know, it came out and people seemed to like it and, it and it did well, and there seemed to be some appetite for a sequel, I kind of thought, all right, now I can, I can finally do America. Or I can finally take it on. I think I know how to do it now. You're very, you're very humble, and your people seem to like it. I think people seem to love it. Is is the reaction I see? I know. Well, it's, it, you know, it's very gratifying. It's I, you know, it was a book that came out at the beginning of the pandemic, and I just thought, you know, there was a there was a, there was a launch scheduled for it at this um, convention and everything, and then obviously that all just went away. And I thought, I'll be lucky if anyone ever reads this book. I just, <laughs> you know, I I kind of thought that it would just come out and die. Oh bloody hell, yeah. That people found it and it got good word of mouth. There's always it's, it's it's something I'm still kind of like getting over a bit. It was it was not something I ever expected, and I'm really obviously pleased that it happened. Yeah, um, and it led led to me writing the sequel. So yeah, when it when it came to doing the sequel, I was like, right, I'm going to get as much in there as I can do. I knew it was going to be a big book. Yeah, when I started it, I didn't necessarily know quite how big, but I thought. 
you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of try and get the scope or and there's still, you know, there's obviously a ton of films that aren't in there that I would have loved to get in there. There was, you know, I had a whole long list of stuff that I was considering, which for one reason or another didn't make it in. But I I just kind of thought I'm gonna try and do the scope of American horror justice. Mm. At the same time, I'm gonna try and do a bit of a shadow history of America and pick up story threads from the first book and continue those. And so, yeah, it just turned into this monster of a book that took up a year of my life. And it, and it, is, <laughs> and it is genuinely a sequel, isn't it? It, 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 relies, it, is, yeah. it relies on you re- reading the first one and you, you're pains to point it out in your, in your prologue, aren't you? That- yeah. I mean, there is, a, a, it's, you know, much like the first book, there's a lot of standalone chapters in there. Um, but certainly, yes, if you read the first book, you know, the first book kind of ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. So it would have been unfair for me not to pick that up. I didn't, you know, when I wrote the first book, I had no real idea that I would pick it up. Mm. But when it when it when it sort of became clear I was going to do a sequel, I was like, all right, well, now I have to sort of see where that story goes. Um, so yeah, in that sense, you know, it picks up just right where the last one left off. Yeah, and there is a narrative thread that continues in it. So uh, yeah, no, it's very much a direct sequel. Yeah, and for the benefit of the listener, I mean, I'm I'm a hundred pages in, so I'm I'm. I think I'm yet to really meet head on where the, where the two overlap at the minute. So it's uh, it's interesting the, sto- yeah, the story you're weaving. Yeah, I mean the structure of the book is is sort of divided into two halves. First half, kind of the the, the sort of continuing narrative takes a little bit of a backseat, and it, the first half of the book is kind of um, a sort of trip through America's history. Um, you know, obviously using genre films as a as a way to look at it and kind of brings us gradually up into the present day, at which point we start to see the story threads mm. kind of slowly seeping back in again. So, uh, yeah. So you, there's loads. You'll, you'll get to all that stuff. In no, I'm excited to, because obviously, <laughs> obviously, um, um, God, my mind's gone blank now. Uh, Damien Thorne obviously is a, is a, is a, is a key thread here. Yeah, I mean, he kind of just symbolises everything that's rotten with the world. It's sort of like not only not only is he, is he the Antichrist, but he's also, you know, a symbol of, like, rampant corporatism and, you know, yeah. um, populism and all this stuff. He's just kind of like a very handy symbol for everything that's, that's terrible in the world at the moment, basically. Now, not as much effort as you did, but during pandemic, I, I got my hands on Twilight's Last Dreaming. Well... That was a film I caught over the pan- I caught up on over the pandemic, right? Oh uh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like the, the the title is more. It's not a direct reference to the film. It's more than. It's more a reference to the to the you know the song that the film took its name from as well. Hmm. Uh, um, and um, yeah, you know, I kind of thought I went back and forth on the title. I was like, oh, you know, it would be nice to continue the sort of screaming thing. And I thought of this title and I was like, oh, is it, is it too much for a pun? Can I get away with it? And um, I sort of road tested it before an audience at a Q&A I did last year and everyone seemed to like it. So I was like... I no, I think, it's really, it. I think it's really cool. <laughs> I think it's a really good one. And, and obviously England screaming is now on perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, can, you can't beat that one. <laughs> yeah. I know, yeah. You've got to do something different. So, yeah. Well, look, what we're going to do then, we can't, we can't, um, I can't talk my way through the book as I've not read it. And, uh, and I think having done that with you once before on the England screen, and I think we'd be talking about the same thing, just different films. 
in many senses. Sure. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the England Screaming one so people can learn about how you went about writing it. Um, <clears throat> so for this one, you've kindly supplied us with five films that you reference um, in the um, in Twilight Slash five, Screaming. Five out, of, five out of many films, yes. Go on, what's, what's the total number of films you actually cross-referenced in, in this book? Oh, um, I know it's... I can't remember offhand exactly how many it is now, but it's if you look in the back of the book, it's the list stretches because there's you know much like there was in England screaming. I put a list in of everything referenced in the book. Okay, the list, list, list stretches across five pages worth of films. So yeah, it's quite a lot. Okay, you know, yeah. So we're into we're into the we're into the hundreds, aren't we? Uh, quite possibly, yeah. I'd, I'd have to go back and check exactly how many it was, but it's but a we're lot. Gonna, we're going we're gonna to touch on five, and two of which I've seen before, but three I've definitely not seen. So it's going to be interesting to hear about those films. Um, and I'm going to use the five-by-five five format. So for those who haven't heard this before, I mean, Sean's done this before, so he knows. Um, we, we have a timer going for five minutes, and we talk about, we talk about the film for five minutes. And when the dog barks, we stop there and we move on to the next film. Um, that seem okay with you, Sean? That's fine. I'm going to do them in the order you gave them me. I noticed that, I mean, I didn't know this, February is now is now also called the Black Coat's Daughter. Uh, yeah, that was... Uh, February is its original title. Black Coat's Daughter was what it was changed to in the US. I guess they didn't think, they didn't think it was horror enough. And so because that's the US title, that's kind of what it's more commonly known as now, but the original title. Yeah, I saw February. it this February when I saw it. Okay, well, well I'll yeah. stick with the titles you give me and um, and we'll go from there. So, right, first one you gave me is when we were talking about this on Shudder, which is Messiah of Evil from 1973. So what is it about that one that appeals? Messiah of Evil, you know, it was one of those films I didn't see for a long time. It was kind of, it used to, well, it used to be kind of quite hard to see. There was not really a good version of it available. And I remember reading about it in Kim Newman's Nightmare movies, hmm. uh, which was kind of, you know, obviously a very formative book for me when I was a teenager. Um, and, and and Kim spoke quite highly of it. Um, and I just didn't actually just get around to seeing it until probably within like the last 10 years or so, 10, 15 years maybe. Hmm. Um and I wasn't entirely sure what to make of it the first time I watched it, but it's just one of those films that got a bit of a hold on me and I kept going back to it because it's just such an odd, atmospheric little film. Um, and, yeah, over the course of kind of watching it a few more times, I just really, really, it's, it got its hooks into me. It's just a very, it's kind of a perfect example of one of these sort of, American 70s horror films that is just very offbeat and atmospheric and, and you know, a little bit off kilter, just doesn't quite make, it doesn't feel like a conventional horror film in many ways. It's very okay. sort of dreamlike. Um, you know, it, it, it always feels a bit to me like it's kind of a nice, uh, would make a nice sort of second half of a double bill with Let's Get Jessica to Death. I was gonna. I was gonna suggest that looking at even look at the trailer, it had that vibe about it. Yeah, it has the same that same just sort of like weird 
dreamy atmosphere and it's you know essentially it's it, it's kind of a it's it's sort of a vampire stroke zombie movie mm. uh, but it's also very lovecraftian it has all this kind of like mythology about this dark preacher who walked into the sea a hundred years ago and is going to come back and it's going to mean the end of time and and all this sort of thing and it's just it's it's one of those weirdly sort of disjointed little films that doesn't quite add up maybe doesn't 100 percent make sense but that only works to its benefit okay it's you know it's it's you know it, you know, I, 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 you know, I'll always stand by the point that the the death of horror is often over-explaining things, and I would much prefer I much prefer films that under-explain things yeah, or leave, yeah, yeah. leave you to connect the dots. You know, and there are a lot of dots to connect in Messiah of Evil, but I just think it really works for the film, um, and um, you know, it's it, it seems to have sort of gradually gained a following over the years it's sort of like it is at least at least now available it's like there was an american blu-ray that came out and i think now it's on shutter as well yeah so people can see it um and i know it's like you know the the, the people that made it it was it was made by uh, willard hike and gloria katz who went on to work with lucas and spielberg so oh, wow. It, yeah, so they kind of enjoyed like quite a prominent career after it, and so this was a, like a bit of a footnote to their career. And they've always been a bit, I think, slightly embarrassed about it. But in recent years, as it's gained a fan base, they've spoken about it a bit more. Oh, that's nice. And they, I think they're kind of a, they're all sort of slightly bewildered why people like it. It's, to them, it's just this cheap little horror movie they made when they were starting out. But it, it just really has this such an odd, disturbing atmosphere. Um, and it, it's so much of its time. It's like you know, I just don't think you get movies like this anymore. No, for sure. Look, I mean, but but also the, the it get, I get the impression, and if you're comparing it to Scared to Get to Death, these these kind of low budget horror films where clearly people from the city have got this imagined version of these small locked off towns where anything anything goes really as far as kind of you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has this. I mean, I I have a particular I have a particularly soft spot movies that are set on the coast horror movies set on the coast because i just think coastal towns uh have have a really great kind of atmosphere you sort of they really are on the cusp between two worlds and i love i love horror films that sort of set on you know sort of isolated coastal towns and 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 this is a great one you know it just has that sort of atmosphere that uh that goes along with that kind of thing um and uh it's you know it's it you could see it there's a there was a, a recent horror movie that came out earlier this year called off season which oh, yeah, again yeah. it was all, which is also on shutter i think and off season is massively lifting from Messiah review oh really it's sort of, yeah absolutely it was you know I, i've sat down to watch it and it, it didn't take long i was like all right yeah this is this is Messiah of evil well there we go that's Messiah of evil thank you very much uh, moving swiftly along, we'll uh, we'll jump into February, which which I hadn't realised until uh, going back over it was an A twenty was like an early A twenty four film, so it predates um, predates the witch. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't think it was an in house production. I think A twenty four picked it up, although it sort of seems to fit quite nicely in with what they do. I still don't think they really knew what to do with it. So that it didn't get like a particularly big release or anything like that. I think in, in the US it was kind of trickled out and mm. ended up streaming pretty quickly. 
Um, and again, it's a film that didn't necessarily get that much attention when it first came out. And I think it, you know, got mixed reviews. But in the last sort of five, six years, it's kind of gradually again picked up a following. Mm. Um, it's, you know, directed by Oz Perkins, who's Anthony Perkins' son. Um, and it it really does sort of fit nicely into the kind of recent wave of art house horror, what some people would call elevated horror. But yeah. I loathe and despise that term. So, but it's, it's going yeah, nowhere, it, Sean. It, the phrase is going nowhere. <laughs> It's um yeah it's it's a really atmospheric movie it's um it's a possession movie mm. and God knows we've seen enough of those in the last well you know certainly the last forty fifty years yeah uh, but uh, even in the last ten fifteen years um but it does something very interesting in that it's a possession movie that's about loss and essentially what it does is sort of show you kind of a, a relatively standard case of possession. But then it asks what happens afterwards, you know, what happens to the girl who gets possessed once she's once she's lost that companion mm. and and maybe she wants it back and and maybe there's maybe she's incredibly lonely having known that. Yeah. And so it's it's a really interesting angle from which to approach a sort a well worn subject. Yeah, which which is um, which is a common you know, people who grieve, that is a common thing, isn't it? You know, the wish the wish yeah. they were here. You know, it's just you know we we've seen all the sort of you know the vomiting and the and uh, and the and the funny voices and all this kind of thing. Yeah. Um. And there's a bit of that in this. It doesn't entirely shy away from the kind of tropes, mm. but it just takes a, a a very sort of unusual angle to deal with the subject, which is you know always a wise thing to do in horror when you're sort of dealing with sort of stuff that's been done quite a lot before. Many well, what times. What stood before. out for me was the 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 sort of the sort of supporting cast, certainly the adults in the film, as it were, they all had a kind of, I don't know what you call it, oddness to them, almost like absurd, the way that they talk to the children at some point. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole film is is quite odd. It has this very sort of hushed atmosphere. Yeah. And you know, it definitely feels quite different to a lot of other genre stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very quiet film and it doesn't really do much in the way of big scares or anything like that, but it's just, you know, it's, it has this real mood that gets inside your bones. Um, and, you know, I, I just sort of love love his style. Again, he's, his stuff's divisive, you know. there's uh, this, this film splits people, his second film splits people even more on The Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Oh, wow, um, I didn't realise that was the same director. Yeah, which is another film I like a lot. Where they're they're both in the book, you know. It was, yeah. it was kind of like um, as as divisive as they are for some people. I couldn't resist but putting them both in the book. Yeah, um, because I really do think he's he's quite a major talent, and yet he doesn't get half the attention that some of the other you know direct horror directors of that of that generation are getting. Both, both examples, you've, you obviously the one you've given and and the, the second one, they both haven't had a like. Didn't get big releases. I, again, I only came across them once they hit streamers. Uh, I am the pretty thing was was picked up by Netflix, so that's that's a net title. So that at least 
kind of always been available for people. But again, it's, you know, it's one of those films you go on Netflix and you, you look, look at the user reviews and people are like, this is terrible. What's this film about? Well, not, like but so that's kind of what I mean. It's like that. They, the, we, we still li- we're still living through a period, aren't we, where we don't know what a Netflix release is compared yeah. to like, yeah. you know, the witch goes to the cinemas before it goes anywhere near watching it yeah. or, 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 you know, Midsummer did, you know, it's like, yeah. if it gets that run, it gets that chance to be the big horror film, doesn't it? Yeah, and you, I, I, I can see why these are not, you know, the big horror films because they're quite elliptical and quite opaque, hmm. um, and they're not pressing all the buttons that a stream genre audience would want. But I still think they're really interesting, worthwhile movies. And if you like horror, that's a bit, you know, coming at it from a slightly skewed angle, then these these are the movies for you. I hope, hopefully, that the algorithms kind of bear this out and don't and don't give Netflix pause for thought because if this is the way we're going to get to see them, then hopefully it continues. Yeah. Third up, we've got the rough and ready, literally poor, pretty Eddie. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is this is a certain American film of a certain time in American history, isn't it? Yeah, this was a film that I watched. Uh, I believe I first heard about it from my friend Kayla Janice, who was, I think it's a favourite of hers. And um, I wanted to... I, the thing is, so the thing with these books is they're not meant to be guides to horror. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's like I like to try and put in films that are interesting and I like to try and put in a, a, a representation of a kind of span of films. Yeah. You know, to sort of just show you the sort of breadth of, of what the genre can produce. So when I was doing American American horror films, I wanted to do a kind of a grindhousey film, yeah, just to sort of represent that. I kind of thought at least I need to do at least one really sort of sleazy grindhouse film, just to sort of show, you know, to tip my hat to that. Yeah, and then I thought, oh yeah, poor pretty Eddie, because this really is the kind of film that you watch now, and it. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done still feels transgressive like you know 50 years later mm. it's still it's the kind of film that you would never get made now it feels genuinely dangerous and weird and upsetting and you know many many people will find it quite offensive if you watch it now yeah um, yeah yeah i imagine what you know that's what these movies were all about they were all about pressing buttons and you know, I'm not going to say that it, it, you know, it obviously takes on some thorny issues in terms of, of race and all that kind of thing. And I'm not going to say it does it delicately. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of these movies, and I've been watching quite a bunch of them recently for something else I'm working on. I think a lot of these movies kind of get at something very raw and very truthful about America, you know, in a in a sort of, are very unsparing and not delicate way, but I think they do get at something quite truthful, you know, mm. and that's not to say that they're not exploitative at the same time because they are, but I do think there's a lot of truth to them. And I think Poor Pretty Eddie is a, a good example of that. 
you know and it's like yeah if you like if you're interested in transgressive cinema because god knows there's not an awful lot of it around at the moment it's like you know a lot of films play it pretty safe these days certainly genre films do mm. then yeah stuff like this will definitely raise your eyebrows because it's you know again they don't they don't make them like this anymore i mean there is there is an argument isn't it that that, that while you don't over explain yourself when you're dealing with thorny issues like like race in america there's no point beating around beating around the bush with it in a way no, I, I I think so, and that's why you know. And this um, was and this was made, you know, six what six years after the civil rights movement had really matured into into changing yeah. the law. So it was still a country yeah, that yeah. was wounded. In I mean, it's it's kind of even even the story of like how and why this film was made is kind of fascinating because you know the guy the guy that produced it was a porno producer, okay, um, who was eventually convicted of like whacking several of his competitors um yeah oh yeah no he was basically a gangster um and i think making films like this like so-called mainstream films where it was a way of sort of funneling ill-gotten profits so you know the the story behind the movie is as sleazy as the movie is um but yeah it's 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 kind it's a fascinating document of its time and certainly when I decided to include it in the book, you know, it was dealing with stuff that I knew I was going to have to deal with in the book. Mm. And so the chapter it ended up in is, again, I sort of just followed the lead. And so that chapter is very confrontational. And because there were some bumps in the road along the way to the book being published, some people have asked me, oh, was it because of that chapter? Because that chapter's quite, quite in your face. And it actually wasn't, but I see why people say that. Because I think that's one chapter where people will be like, "Whoa, you know." But you're you've got to deal with the films on their own terms, uh, and so yeah, the chapter involving this and another, you know, film which deals with racial politics, uh, you know, they are quite forthright because you kind of have to be. But I was, to th- I was thinking, like in 1975, the only way you would have seen this film is in a cinema. So the idea that there was a there was a, a network of places, you know, your flea pits and your grindhouses that. Across, some, yeah. I'm guessing largely across American cities, and maybe the odd driving would have been the place. But you would have been able to see them in certainly in the bigger cities. We're moving on to possession of Joel Delaney from 1972 for the next one. This is um, another possession movie, uh, although of a quite of a different sort. Um, and I wanted to highlight it here. It's basically, essentially, I kind of ended up doing all of the possession movies in a single chapter, pretty much okay. in, uh, in the book. I sort of figured out, cause this, there's so many of them and I figured out a way to do it in one chapter. Mm-hmm. So both this and February are in, are in the same chapter. Oh, wow. um, yeah. But this, this is a film I really wanted to get in there because again, I think it's relatively little known partly because it, I mean, at the moment I, it, it barely has a good release anywhere. It's like there's an Australian Blu-ray, which is well worth picking up. But again, you've got to pay import prices for that. And I don't really think it's available anywhere else at this moment in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's £29 to buy in the first place. If you put import on, pot, on top of that. I think Network have the rights because it was, it was a Lou Grade production, uh, bizarrely enough. That DVD is out of print. So hopefully maybe Network will bring out a Blu-ray at some point. Uh, I really hope they do. But yeah. It's a 
early 70s uh, movie about possession starring Shirley MacLaine. Which blows my mind. I mean, how's how's Shirley MacLaine from the apartment in this film? I know, yeah. It's um <laughs> but it's it's kind of a, it's sort of a classy film in a way, but at the same time, again, it's it's genuinely transgressive as yeah. to where it goes. I mean, it's a paramount film, so it's a major studio production. It's pre The Exorcist. Yeah. So it's not even riding that particular bandwagon. Um, and it deals with possession in a much more grounded way um it doesn't obviously the the first half of the exorcist sort of attempts to deal with possession in a grounded way before it eventually goes off into you know yeah catholicism and spinning heads and all that kind of stuff whereas this is this is much more grounded in the real world overall and what's really fascinating about it is it deals so much with class and race in a way that a lot of american films actually don't and so you get this, essentially there's this um, Joel Delaney, who is the brother of Shirley MacLaine's character. Um, she co- gradually comes to realise she's been possessed by the spirit of this uh, Puerto Rican murderer. Mm. Um, and it's sort of her. And, and she, they're a very sort of bourgeois, Upper West Side, you know, family. And, and she has to confront the fact that her brother is possessed by this, you know, foreign ghost invaded from the outside by a maniac who's dead yeah 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 and it involves her having to deal with puerto rican community and all this kind of thing and it's so it's a really fascinating sort of portrait of class a class struggle yeah um but yeah also i I sort of i showed it to a friend of mine recently and i and i sort of said to him you are not going to believe where this film goes (laughs) and he was was watching it and you sort of afterwards he said to me yeah i was kind of like you know we we were like an hour in and I kind of thought, well, I don't really see what's so it's a good film, but I don't see what Sean's talking about. And then you get to the climax and you were just like, holy shit. I just can't believe what I've just seen. <laughs> it, it really, again, it's like, it goes to sorts of places where, you know, films did in the 1970s and they just don't anymore. And I don't think you would ever see what you see in the end of this film in a contemporary film. Now, I just don't think it would ever happen. Blimey O'Reilly. That's some tease that Sean. Yes, so um, so I should just say quickly as a bit as a further tease that yeah. we're hoping to do a bit of an event for the book uh, in the next couple of months, which will in in fingers crossed involve a screening of this film yeah. at a cinema. So I can't confirm anything yet, but we're working on that at the moment. So for anyone who hasn't seen it and wants to see it, keep your eyes open because uh, that's what we're working on doing right now. Well, hopefully there'll be a, a a companion podcast with the people that are potentially doing that event that will be able to confirm that in a couple of weeks. So we'll see. Excellent. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's hope that all works out then. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I thoroughly recommend this film. I think it's a great, uh, again, a sort of great example of how to come at a, a sort of fairly well-worn subject in a different way. Hmm. And a really sort of intelligent, it sort of shows you what horror can do when it's it's not just about you know the special effects and the and the stuff the bells and the whistles is actually sort of a real interesting way of using a supernatural metaphor to get at real life issues i was going to say yeah because you 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 mentioned class and you mentioned puerto rican so you can you can see how where that's you can you can already imagine yeah. where that might want to go and it's already yeah. more challenging than just simply there's something scary happened to a brother, you know, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. 
And finally, in your five, we go to The Wind, a very recent film, 2018. There's a whole bunch of films I could have included from this, from the book. I thought I'd include this because I I don't know how many people have seen it. Uh, I know it it did screen at Fright Fest, so I guess some people saw it there. It's yeah. available digitally. Um, but it, again, it's one of those films that I don't I don't really know how many people have seen. And, and, and I think it's a really great debut um, for Emma Tammy. Yeah, it's, it's a uh, phenomenal debut. Yeah. It's a um, it's a western, um, and I you know in the book I sort of decided to do a western sequence, mm. a sort of you know gothic horror westerns, which is the I bit I'm in thought, the I'm in the heart I'm in the heart of right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sort of I when I when I when I started the book, I knew there was going to be at least one in there. Yeah, and then I suddenly thought, ah, oh, there's more here. I can I can do a whole sequence of like of gothic westerns, and. Um, and so the, and the wind sort of uh, came to me pretty quickly. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really sort of fascinating atmospheric film about, um, you know, people living on the frontier mm. and the sort of loneliness of uh, life on the prairies and how that might start to, you know, prey on your mind if you're a woman. I, th- I thought it was one of the best, portrayals of it forget the kind of supernatural element that they, they, they may yeah. or may not exist just that yeah. idea of the isolation terrified me yeah 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 and the sort of that kind of hard scrabble existence yeah you know american west if you're if you're you know if you're out there on the frontier you're not living in a town or anything like that you're just out there on the plains on your own yeah what that might be like um and yeah i just think it's such a it's a sort of you know it does what I think a lot of the best horror movies of this type do is that it sort of weaves together the psychology of the characters with the supernatural stuff mm. very deftly so that you can, you can interpret it as just her madness or you can interpret it as supernatural, whatever mm. you like. Um, but it's a really interesting psychological portrait of this, of this one there's, woman. There's parallels there with the Babadook in some sense, isn't there? Yes, I think there are, but whereas I'm, I am one of those people who go out on a limb and say, I don't think the Babadook's as good as some people say it is. Okay. Well, no, uh, it, it's not about the quality, but just I, the- I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a good movie, but I also think it doesn't quite know where to go. Hmm. Uh, as it gets towards the end, I, I don't think it keeps all the balls in the air and I don't think it really knows how to resolve itself. Whereas something like the wind knows exactly how to resolve itself. Okay. That's what you're saying. It, you know, uh, it, it, um, it teases out its plot threads very well and brings them together very satisfyingly at the end, I think. Well, it's a, you, it's, um, it's a brilliant use of non-linear storytelling as well, the way that yeah, you, you, yes, you flip yes, between it's, time. It's, it's really, the, script, the script is really well constructed in terms of like what information is revealed to you when and how it brings yeah. everything together. And if, if, a, if and I could be so bold, there's, there's kind of there's similarities there between what you're doing with your book, you know, the way you kind of drop in stuff and yeah that's yes I suppose, yeah yeah that's i hadn't thought about it that way but yeah yeah it's uh interesting and also you know it's it's given what you know the the western is a, a very sort of male dominated genre it's really interesting to see a female take on it mm. you know both written and directed by women and starring a, a woman as the main character mm. it's uh really it's just a really sort of different take 
Um, and yeah, I kind of, I really hope she goes on to do more stuff. Um, it's, she's not really sort of had a second movie proper yet. I think she did one of those sort of Blumhouse direct, direct TV movies. Mm. Um, but I'd really like to see her sort of graduate to the kind of. I totally agree. I mean, I mean, for, for, for on a horror front, I mean, it absolutely delivers one of the most chilling scares I've seen in a long while. Like me and my wife watching it together, and there's a moment where the preacher reveals yeah. his identity, as it were, for, one of, for not wanting to spoil it too much, which is yeah. truly chilling. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think it's got a great. I mean, I'm I'm a big um, atmosphere junkie in horror mm. movies. It's sort of like I don't really need much in the way of jump scares or anything like that. I like atmosphere and I think this film has it in spades. It's mm. just um the really it really makes you feel that isolation. Yeah. Sort of like being stuck out in the middle of nowhere with no one to help you. Yeah, there's there's always a measure every time we watch any film with any kind of extremes, me and my wife, it's always a case of we'll be getting into the film and like, you know, as early on in the wind you've got them just making a balls of the vegetable patch or something like that. You just go yeah. We couldn't live there, could we? There's no way we could live there. <laughs> you know, even even with what we know now, we just wouldn't survive two minutes. <laughs> and that's you know that's before you get into the what you know all the kind of the, the real dread that really creeps into the film. You just think it's already hard oh, before yeah. you bring in that. Oh, I'd live in dread of like tending a vegetable patch, let alone you know, <laughs> supernatural <laughs> demon. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, look. Uh, let's just run through the five films you've just given us. Uh, you've given us your insight into, which is Messiah of Evil from '73, February from 2015, Poor Pretty Eddie from '75. Which, which I, I forgot to we forgot to say like that. Shirley Winters is in this. Uh, Shirley Winters is in this, isn't she? And and like Shirley Winters, yeah, Slim Pickens. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's, it's uh, not like I mean, it's a skeezy film, but it's it's got yeah bona well, fide. <laughs> Shirley Winters had a bit of an awful live exploitation movies and yeah. this might be as exploitative as she got. Yeah. Know? It's, um, yeah, no, it's, I mean, but she, hey, she goes for it in this film. She really does. <laughs> and we got The Possession of Joel Delaney, which for, uh, hopefully for uh, London-based or people with access to London, there might be a chance to see that in the coming weeks. And The Wind, which you can rent on Prime. So that's in reference to your new book, Twilight Slash Screaming, which is, do you want to tell people how they can get their hands on it? So it's available direct from the publisher, Black Shunt Books, or it's available via Amazon or Waterstones or basically yeah, anywhere, anywhere you want to order it from, you can get it. So where you can get books from, you can get it. Yes. And it is the sequel to England Screaming, and the advice is give that a read first. Yep. England Screaming, yes, is uh, came out a couple of years ago, um, and again is available via Amazon, and uh, that's with a different publisher, PS Publishing. Um, but yes, can be ordered anywhere. And yeah, no, I mean, if you haven't read England Screaming, I would recommend reading that first before you get the new one. And uh, that's not just a naked pitch for uh, more royalties. <laughs> I do think it helps if you've read both. No, books. I think I can I can concur. <laughs> there is some genuine there's genuine there's genuine reasons why it's worth reading England's screaming before you read Twilight's last screen. Yeah, there is there is a continuing story being being told that is concluded in this new book. So yeah. I still think though, and even though I'm only partway through your new one, and I remember from your first one, you know, a brilliant you you created brilliant stories and and took characters to new places. But 
I do think it's you still do manage to do an intriguing sort of meta-analysis of contemporary, you know, horror. I think you do achieve. Oh, yeah, that. I mean that's that, that's that's definitely the point. I've 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 sort of had this discussion with various people. Um, it's not, you know, the books are not meant to be just fan fiction as much as as much, you know. Um, you know, there would be. <laughs> I don't think anyone would publish them if they were just fan fiction. No, I think. I mean, to be honest with you, John, it's. I mean, you know, you 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 can blush if you want, but I think it's too clever to be just be fan fiction. It's so what you do with the worlds that you've seen in film and then taken into as your own. I think is goes beyond what I would think of as fan fiction. I mean, obviously, they are they are fun to write, and mm. I'm not going to deny that. And hopefully, they're fun to read, just on that level as well. Certainly, but are. yeah, there, there's definite intent in terms of how you know the lines that are being, the connections that are being made, and the films that are being sort of played off against each other. There, there's definite intent there in how the sort of metafiction is working, and and also just overall in terms of like the books are very much an attempt to kind of look at the, the, you know, the state of the world, the, the times in which we live in through the lens of genre cinema, mm. because, you know, I, I always think that genre cinema is a great sort of barometer of its time, the times in which it's produced because yeah. it deals with so much kind of collective unconscious and all that kind of thing. And you look back at genre films and you see how they reflect their times and so this is basically just that on a very large scale. It's sort of like, all right, I'm going to look at the last sort of 50 to 100 years of genre cinema and apply it to the world we live in and mm. sort of tease out a kind of slightly satirical portrait of the world through, you know, by, by way of looking at these films. No, I think you do a great job of that, and uh, I'm grateful that you do. Uh, so is there anything else you can tell us about that you've got on the horizon? I mean, spent a year doing that, and this is obviously what you're promoting, but is there anything new you can tell us about? The the one thing I can definitely talk about is the fact that much like, so when I wrote England Screaming, I wrote a smaller companion book, mm. uh, which came out around about the same time called Three Mothers, One Father, which mm. was a, a sm much smaller book, which dealt with Euro horror. It did, yes. Despite the fact that I was exhausted after writing this book, <laughs> I thought I'd do the same thing again, and I managed to sort of summon up just enough energy to write another smaller book, which deals with Australian genre cinema. Oh, wow. Um, and is called That Fatal Shore. And that should be coming out fairly soon. Uh, I'm hoping that if this event that we're, we're talking about yes. happens, we might be able to drop it there. Fantastic. So yes, so that that's that's definitely in the pipeline. It's done. It's sort of ready to come out. It's just sort of finding the right moment to, oh, to put it out. But yeah, so yeah, hopefully if that little screening event happens, um, there might be another new book there, as well as as well as the big one. Just gives me to say congratulations on Twilight's Last Screaming. Like I say, I'm only just into it, but I'm enjoying it and enjoying it as much as England Screaming. So that's off to you on that front. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on Britflix podcast absolute pleasure thanks for having me
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.